left unbroken sheets extend to the horizon. This morning, the mate reported that there were signs of pack ice to the southward. Should this form of sufficient thickness to bar our return, we shall be in a position of danger, as the food, I hear, is already running somewhat short. It is late in the season, and the nights are beginning to reappear. This morning I saw a star twinkling just over the foreyard, the first since the beginning of May. There is considerable discontent among the crew, many of whom are anxious to get back home to be in time for the herring season, when labor always commands a high price upon the Scotch coast. As yet, their displeasure is only signified by sullen countenances and black looks. But I heard from the second mate this afternoon that they contemplated sending a deputation to the captain to explain their grievance. I have much doubt how he will receive it, as he is a man of fierce temper, and very sensitive about anything approaching to an infringement of his rights. I shall venture after dinner to say a few words to him upon the subject. I have always found that he would tolerate from me what he would resent from any other member of the crew. Amsterdam Island, at the northwest corner of Spitzbergen, is visible upon our starboard quarter a rugged line of volcanic rocks, intersected by white seams which represent glaciers. It is curious to think that at the present moment there is probably no human being nearer to us than the Danish settlements in the south of Greenland, a good nine hundred miles as the crow flies. A captain takes a great responsibility upon himself when he risks his vessel under such circumstances. No whaler has ever remained in these latitudes till so advanced a period of the year." 9 p.m. I have spoken to Captain Craigie, and though the result has been hardly satisfactory, I am bound to say that he listened to what I had to say very quietly and even deferentially. When I had finished, he put on that air of iron determination which I frequently observed upon his face, and paced rapidly backwards and forwards across the narrow cabin for some minutes. At first I feared that I had seriously offended him, but he dispelled the idea by sitting down again and putting his hand upon my arm with a gesture which almost amounted to a caress. There was a depth of tenderness, too, in his wild dark eyes, which surprised me considerably. Look here, doctor, he said. I'm sorry I ever took you. I am indeed, and I would get fifty pounds this minute to say you stand and safe upon the Dundee Quay. It's hit or miss with me this time. There are fish to the north of us. How dare you shake your head, sir, when I tell you I saw them blown from the masthead. This, in a sudden burst of fury, though I was not conscious of having shown any signs of doubt. Two and twenty fish, in as many minutes as I am eleven man, and not one under ten foot. Now, doctor, do you think I can leave the country, when there is only one infernal strip of ice between me and my fortune? If it came on to blow from the north tomorrow, we could fill the ship and be away before the frost could catch us. If it came on to blow from the south, well, I suppose the men are paid for risking their lives. And as for myself, it matters but little to me, for I have more to bind me to the other world than to this one. I confess that I am sorry for you, though. I wish I had old Angus Tate, who was with me last voyage, for he was a man that would never be missed, and you— you said once that you were engaged, did you not? Yes, I answered, snapping the spring of the locket which hung from my watch-chain, and holding up the little vignette of Flora. Karsia, he yelled, springing out of his seat, with his very beard bristling with passion. What is your happiness to me? What have I to do with her, that you must dangle her photograph before my eyes? 
He almost thought that he was about to strike me in the frenzy of his rage, but with another imprecation he dashed open the door of the cabin and rushed out upon deck, leaving me considerably astonished at his extraordinary violence. It is the first time that he has ever shown me anything but courtesy and kindness. I can hear him pacing excitedly up and down overhead as I write these lines. I should like to give a sketch of the character of this man, but it seems presumptuous to attempt such a thing upon paper, when the idea in my own mind is at best a vague and uncertain one. Several times I have thought that I grasped the clue which might explain it, but only to be disappointed by his presenting himself in some new light which would upset all my conclusions. It may be that no human eye but my own shall ever rest upon these lines, yet as a psychological study I shall attempt to leave some record of Captain Nicholas Craigie. A man's outer case generally gives some indication of the soul within. The captain is tall and well-formed, with dark, handsome face and a curious way of twitching his limbs, which may arise from nervousness or be simply an outcome of his excessive energy. His jaw and whole cast of countenance is manly and resolute, but the eyes are the distinctive feature of his face. They are of the very darkest hazel, bright and eager, with a singular mixture of recklessness in their expression, and of something else which I have sometimes thought was more allied with horror than any other emotion. Generally, the former predominated, but on occasions, and more particularly when he was thoughtfully inclined, the look of fear would spread and deepen until it imparted a new character to his whole countenance. It is at these times that he is most subject to tempestuous fits of anger. He seems to be aware of it, for I have known him to lock himself up so that no one might approach him until his dark hour was past. He sleeps badly, and I have heard him shouting during the night. But his cabin is some little distance from mine, and I could never distinguish the words which he said." This is one phase of his character, and the most disagreeable one. It is only through my close association with him, thrown together as we are day after day, that I have observed it. Otherwise, he is an agreeable companion, well-read and entertaining, and as gallant a seaman as ever trod a deck. I shall not easily forget the way in which he handled the ship when we were caught by a gale among the loose ice at the beginning of April. I have never seen him so cheerful and even hilarious as he was that night, as he paced backwards and forwards upon the bridge amid the flashing of the lightning and the howling of the wind. He has told me several times that the thought of death was a pleasant one to him, which is a sad thing for a young man to say. He cannot be much more than thirty, though his hair and mustache are already slightly grizzled. Some great sorrow must have overtaken him and blighted his whole life. Perhaps I should be the same if I lost my flora. God knows. I think, if it were not for her, that I should care very little whether the wind blew from the north or the south tomorrow. There, I hear him come down the companion, and he has locked himself up in his room, which shows that he is still in an unamiable mood. And so to bed, as old Peppis would say, for the candle is burning down. We have to use them now, since the nights are closing in, and the steward has turned in, so there are no hopes of another one. September 12th. Calm, clear day, and still lying in the same position. What wind there is comes from the southeast, but it is very slight. Captain is in a better humor, and apologized to me at breakfast for his rudeness. He still looks somewhat distrait. However, 
and he retains that wild look in his eyes which in a Highlander would mean that he was fey. At least, so our chief engineer remarked to me, and he has some reputation among the Celtic portion of our crew as a seer, an expounder of omens. It is strange that superstition should have obtained such mastery over this hard-headed and practical race. I could not have believed to what an extent it has carried, had I not observed it for myself. We have had a perfect epidemic of it this voyage, until I felt inclined to serve out rations of sedatives and nerve tonics with a Saturday allowance of grog. The first symptom of it was that shortly after leaving Sutland, the men at the wheel used to complain that they heard plaintive cries and screams in the wake of the ship, as if something were following it and were unable to overtake it. This fiction has been kept up during the whole voyage, and on dark nights, at the beginning of the seal fishing, it was only with great difficulty that men could be induced to do their spell. No doubt what they heard was either the creaking of the rudder chains or the cry of some passing seabird. I have been fetched out of bed several times to listen to it, but I need hardly say that I was never able to distinguish anything unnatural. The men, however, are so absurdly positive upon the subject that it is hopeless to argue with them. I mentioned the matter to the captain once, but to my surprise he took it very gravely, and indeed appeared to be considerably disturbed by what I told him. I should have thought that he, at least, would have been above such vulgar delusions. All this disquisition upon superstition leads me up to the fact that Mr. Manson, our second mate, saw a ghost last night, or at least says that he did, which of course is the same thing. It is quite refreshing to have some new topic of conversation after the eternal routine of bears and whales which has served us for so many months. Manson swears the ship is haunted, and that he would not stay in her a day if he had any other place to go to. Indeed, the fellow was honestly frightened, and I had to give him some chloral and bromide of potassium this morning to steady him down. He seemed quite indignant when I suggested that he had been having an extra glass the night before, and I was obliged to pacify him by keeping as grave a countenance as possible during his story, which he certainly narrated in a very straightforward and matter-of-fact way. "'I was on the bridge,' he said, "'about four bells in the middle watch,' Just when the night was at its darkest, there was a bit of a moon, but the clouds were blowing across it so that you couldn't see far from the ship. John McLeod, the harpooner, came out from the forecastle head and reported a strange noise on the starboard bow. I went forward, and we both heard it, sometimes like a bairn crying, and sometimes like a winch in pain. I've been seventeen years to the country, and never heard seal, old or young, make a sound like that. As we were standing there on the forecastle head, the moon came out from behind a cloud, and we both saw a sort of white figure moving across the ice field in the same direction that we heard the cries. We lost sight of it for a while, but it came back on the port bow, and we could just make it out like a shadow on the ice. I sent a hand aft for the rifles, and McLeod and I went down onto the pack, thinking that maybe it might be a bear. When we got on the ice, I lost sight of McLeod, but I pushed on in the direction where I could still hear the cries. I followed them for a mile, or maybe more, and then running around a hummock, I came right onto the top of it, standing and waiting for me, seemingly. I don't know what it was. It wasn't a bear, anyway. It was tall and white and straight, and if it wasn't a man or a woman, I'll stake my daily it was something worse. I made for the ship as hard as I could run, and precious glad I was to find myself aboard. I signed articles to do my duty by the ship, and on the ship I'll stay." But you don't catch me on the ice again after sundown.
That is a story, given as far as I can in his own words. I fancy what he saw must, in spite of his denial, have been a young bear erect upon its hind legs, an attitude which they often assume when alarmed. In the uncertain light, this would bear a resemblance to a human figure, especially to a man whose nerves were already somewhat shaken. Whatever it may have been, the occurrence is unfortunate, for it has produced a most unpleasant effect upon the crew. Their looks are more sullen than before, and their discontent more open. The double grievance of being debarred from the herring-fishing, and of being detained in what they choose to call a haunted vessel, may lead them to do something rash. Even the harpooners, who are the oldest and steadiest among them, are joining in the general agitation. Apart from this absurd outbreak of superstition, things are looking rather more cheerful. The pack which was forming to the south of us has partly cleared away, and the water is so warm as to lead me to believe that we are lying in one of those branches of the Gulf Stream which run up between Greenland and Spitzbergen. There are numerous small medus and sea lemons about the ship with abundance of shrimps, so that there is every possibility of fish being sighted. Indeed, one was seen blowing about dinner-time, but in such a position that it was impossible for the boats to follow it. September 13th had an interesting conversation with the chief mate, Mr. Milne, upon the bridge. It seems that our captain is as great an enigma to the seamen, and even to the owners of the vessel, as he has been to me. Mr. Milne tells me that when the ship is paid off, upon returning from a voyage, Captain Craigie disappears, and is not seen again until the approach of another season, when he walks quietly into the office of the company, and asks whether his services will be required. He has no friend in Dundee, nor does anyone pretend to be acquainted with his early history. His position depends entirely upon his skill as a seaman, and the name for courage and coolness which he had earned in the capacity of mate, before being entrusted with a separate command. The unanimous opinion seems to be that he is not a Scotchman, and that his name is an assumed one. Mr. Milne thinks that he has devoted himself to whaling simply for the reason that it is the most dangerous occupation which he could select, and that he courts death in every possible manner. He mentions several instances of this, one of which is rather curious, if true. It seems that on one occasion he did not put in an appearance at the office, and a substitute had to be selected in his place. That was at the time of the last Russian and Turkish war. When he turned up again next spring, he had a puckered wound in the side of his neck, which he used to endeavor to conceal with his cravat. Whether the mate's inference that he had been engaged in the war is true or not, I cannot say. It was certainly a strange coincidence. The wind is veering round in an easterly